houses contained lawns and vegetable gardens, but no trees. The war had swallowed almost all the trees within a mile of Sarajevo, cut down and burned for warmth. There was a pervasive air of neglect and decay, peeling paint, a plank fallen from a wooden fence, a cracked window, gardens that were mostly weed, little clumps of debris, that the few new or brightly painted houses could not dispel. A beat-up white Mitsubishi pickup was parked in front of the lit doorway. In the bed of the pickup, a dark-skinned family sat atop a ragged collection of bags and bundles. They were so out of place, they startled me out of my self-righteous reverie and nearly into sobriety. Other than a few NATO troops, they were the only non-white people I'd seen in Bosnia. Two adults and four children, ranging in age from high single digits to mid-teens. I guessed they were South Asian, probably Tamil, judging by their features and the darkness of their skin. Three young white men emerged from the house, all sporting the menacing gangster look. Black clothes, shaved heads, tattoos, alpha male attitude. They approached the pickup, obviously intending to get in and drive away, and the dark-skinned parents, alarmed, started objecting loudly in a strange and sonorous language. The white men hesitated and looked at one another. The driver replied in annoyed Serbo-Croatian. After a brief confused pause, both groups started speaking at once. It quickly became apparent that neither side understood a word the other was saying. I didn't know either language, but I understood that the white men insisted on driving off while the Tamils passionately wanted to stay. The dispute was serious, and exacerbated by the mutual miscommunication, and as I watched, the volume and emotion escalated rapidly until both sides were shouting. Everyone was much too engrossed in their argument to notice me. It took only a minute for matters to come to a boil. One of the white men withdrew keys from his pocket and started towards the driver's seat. The adult Tamils leaped to their feet, howling with anger and dismay, obviously about to step down from the pickup and take their children with them. Then another white man, short and thickly muscled, drew a gun, a big all-metal handgun that gleamed dully in the light, and the cacophony of angry voices went quiet like somebody had pulled a plug. The third white man, skinny and tall, followed his companion's lead and drew another, smaller gun. I thought from his body language that he was only reluctantly following along. The hulking, eager gunslinger aimed his weapon at the Tamil father and barked an order, pointing to the bed of the pickup with his free hand. The father looked at his wife and children. A moment passed where I wasn't sure which way things would go. Then, slowly... Unwillingly, the father sank back down to a seated position, and his wife did the same. The two armed men got into the back of the pickup as well, their guns still out, and motioned and shouted at the Tamils until the family was lined up against the front of the pickup, their backs to the cab, while the two white men sat in the back corners. The engine wheezed and groaned and started. The father started shaking uncontrollably. The mother began to speak breathlessly to the white men, pleading with them desperately, waving her hands weakly, tears leaking out of her eyes, 
her voice so drained of strength that I could not hear it. Their children stared dully at me. I think the eldest, a teenage girl, may have registered my presence. The woman's pleas met with no response. The light in the house went out. After a moment, the door shut, and a fourth figure left the house and entered the passenger side of the cab. In the newly dim light, I couldn't tell if this new arrival was a man or a woman, black or white. The side door closed, and the pickup started forward. I could hear the father weeping over the engine's growl as they moved away. Now that the house light was out, I saw that the street went straight downhill, towards the Milyatska. I shook my head and slowly started to walk, beginning to actually think about what I had seen. Until then, I had reacted like it was entertainment, unscheduled street theater. I had felt no fear when the guns came out. I suppose too much Slivovitz had something to do with that, but even sober, I think I would have stayed calm. I was so much, and so obviously not a part of whatever happened on and around that Mitsubishi pickup, that I couldn't imagine actually being threatened. The setting and the people involved were too foreign, too apart from my life, to impinge on my existence in any way. I developed a vague idea of what had happened. I knew that Bosnia, still a basically wild and lawless country beneath the rigid order imposed by NATO's peacekeepers, was a nexus for people smuggling. That had to be why that family was here. There was no other conceivable reason. They were trying to get themselves into Europe, make a better life for themselves than what they had in Sri Lanka or wherever. This house was a transfer station on the way. And for some reason, the Tamil family really, really hadn't wanted to leave it yet. As I walked, I vaguely wished them the best, hoped they weren't being taken someplace unspeakably awful, and idly wondered why they had so desperately wanted to stay. I was already categorizing the incident as a minor anecdote, something to recount to Talina tomorrow. Nothing that had anything to do with me. When I saw the little boy... He was maybe five years old, wearing ragged blue shorts and little sneakers with holes in them, and oddly a torn and too big Tupac Shakur T-shirt. His hair was dirty and unruly, his skin so dark he looked almost African or Aboriginal. He looked around, up and down the street, and then at me, very confused, his mouth open. I put it all together the family's other child. He had wandered off or gotten lost or decided to play hide-and-seek just as the Bosnian refugee smuggling gangsters had come to take them somewhere else. And now the family, unable to make their loss understood, had been dragged off at gunpoint to who knows where without their youngest son. The lights and sound of the pickup dwindled in the distance. The little boy and I stared at each other. My instinctive, overpowering primal reaction was this. Don't get involved. It wasn't like this was the first time I'd witnessed something awful, or potentially awful. I'd spent a good portion of my twenties traveling to and through various exotic third-world destinations. I'd seen countless hordes of men, women, and children whose lives were measured in suffering. AIDS babies in Zimbabwe, mutilated beggar children in China, 
whole villages with malnutrition-distended bellies in Mali. I had seen scores of skin-and-bones families, their bodies pockmarked with scars and boils, somehow surviving on the streets of Calcutta, staring at wealthy passers-by with eyes too dulled by pain and hunger even to be greedy anymore. And I had walked casually past, without sparing them a rupee or even a thought. This planet is full of terrible things, and if you want to travel and see its wonders, you have to inure yourself to its anguish. I rationalized that the world's awful suffering was not my responsibility, and as long as I didn't actually do anything to increase it, I was on solid moral ground. I told myself that I did a little good each time I traveled, bringing in much-needed hard currency, spending money on hostels and taxis and street vendors, who in turn spent it on their families and neighbors. My own personal trickle-down effect. That was good enough for me. I was a traveler, not a missionary, and I wasn't willing to turn into Mother Teresa. I gave a little money each year to Amnesty International and Doctors Without Borders, and that gave me a license, I thought some kind of license to watch terrible things without ever getting involved. Easy enough to tell yourself. Hard to tell a little boy staring at you quietly with big betrayed eyes as his family disappears into the darkness behind him. Whatever happened, I reminded myself, it wouldn't be my fault. The boy was not my responsibility. I couldn't take him under my wing— the hassle and confusion would become incredibly oppressive. And most of all, I would violate the prime directive. Don't get involved. I half expected him to start crying.